Netcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twit. Bandwidth for Security Now is provided by AOL Radio at AOL.com slash podcasting. This is Security Now with Steve Gibson, episode 153 for July 17th, 2008. Bad form. Security Now is brought to you by Astaro, makers of the Astaro Security Gateway. On the web at www.astaro.com. And by audible.com. For your free audiobook and a whole lot more, visit audiblepodcasts.com slash security now. And by GoToMeeting. For a month of unlimited online meetings absolutely free, go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. It's time for Security Now, the program that helps you protect yourself online with uh, all the tips you need to know. Not just, by, your way, by the way, your security, but your privacy as well. The host of Security Now is here, Mr. Steve Gibson. Hey, Steve. Hey, Leo. Great to be back with you. Good to have you. And we are going to talk about privacy today, aren't we? Yeah, actually, we've got a we one of our rare guest appearances, um, someone named Alexander Hanf, who's in the UK and is pretty much leading the anti-form charge in uh, online news groups and in in privacy circles. You know, we've talked for the last two non-Q&A episodes about this real problem of this sort of this new growing, unfortunately, tendency towards ISPs to sell access to their customers' bandwidth um, in return for revenue. Uh, and, you know, we, we talked in detail two weeks ago about this form, P-H-O-R-M system, about the, the technology that they have installed. Um, Alex is going to talk to us today about just about sort of like the human side, the political side, the, you know, what the, the, the history of this in the UK, which is where form began experimenting in 06, hmm. secret, secretly and in 07. And there's been a huge outcry. I heard you mention, boy, it was in the last couple of hours on Twit Live that the that over in the UK there's seems to be a stronger uh, resistance and, and and concern for privacy rights. Well, so, it's ironic because the UK has more cameras per square foot than any other country in the world. I mean, they already in many ways have lost privacy rights, so maybe that's why they're more sensitive about it. Well, anyway, so Alex is going to tell us all about that. We've got some security news, and I've got a really fun Spinrite anecdote to share. Very good. Before we get started, let me uh, mention we have a new sponsor, and I'm glad to have him. I know you know him very well. I do, too. In fact, I remember uh, meeting uh, one of the founders of the company, Citrix, many years ago. He had worked on OS2 and and really knew the guts of Windows NT backwards and forwards. And that's where Citrix came from. In fact, Windows itself uses Citrix for its remote access client. So the same company makes products like GoToMeeting and GoToMyPC. These are programs that let you do remote access. Now, GoToMeeting to me is the most interesting of these because it gives you a really unique way to use remote access for online meetings. And if you've seen these other online meetings programs, you might say, oh, no, Leo, I've tried this stuff and this is this is not like that. GoToMeeting gives you the, the speed the responsiveness of the Citrix family, um, but for your meetings. So the way it works is you set up a meeting. It's very easy to install. It takes a couple of minutes on your computer. You can set up a meeting with a click of the mouse. It does it in Outlook. Uh, it'll do it in, uh, you know, you could do it by hand you, while you're on the phone. I'll, I could be on the phone right now with you, Stephen. I could say, oh, go to meeting 384999, and uh, you'd go to com. You'd enter that meeting ID. And all of a sudden, you're seeing my computer desktop on your screen. So I could show you PowerPoints. We can collaborate on documents. We can do training. It eliminates the need for travel because this is really, frankly, more engaging than an online meeting. I mean, a uh, in-person meeting. And it's it's very easy to use. And, and that's important. If you're going to have a client sit through a sales presentation, you can't make them jump through hoops first. Go to meeting doesn't. It's so easy. It's so fun. That many people actually say this is a better way, a better way to go. I want to give you a chance to try it free for 30 days. Yes, sir. 30 days unlimited online meetings. Go to go to meeting.com slash security now. 
and you can sign up for a 30-day free trial. I'll tell you, you're going to love this. It is a, it is a really mind-boggling uh, improvement over the standard drive across town or fly across the country for a one-hour meeting. 30-day free trial. Go to gotomeeting.com slash security now. We thank them for their support of the Security Now program. Let's get to security news before we go to form. What's up? Well, the galactically huge, <laughs> uh, you know, mind-blowing security oh, issue. Oh, yeah. I know where you're going here. Yeah. Of course you do. Is that it was revealed. Let's see. What is this? This is Tuesday. Was it yesterday? Or I guess it was late No, it was last a week ago. And unfortunately, it was just after we finished recording. Right. Um what we dis- what 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 the, ind- the 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 computer industry learned is that very very quietly all of this year and especially during the last few months um a well-known security researcher named Dan Kaminsky has been working with every major vendor of DNS servers Cisco the the open source bind folks Microsoft um, you know, and and others to very silently fix a big problem that he found at the beginning of the year in DNS. So what happened is that there was a synchronized. I mean, this has never been done before in the history of the internet. A the first of all, this absolutely didn't leak. There was no no leakage of the information at all, and all at once. All of the DNSs were updated in a big sort of synchronized patch. The idea being to deliberately minimize the the exploit window from the time that news of this would leak out to the time that systems actually got patched and rebooted. You know what I really so, liked is that they also said the patch was not reverse engineerable. Well, okay, so uh, this is about DNS spoofing and. Uh, it is our topic for next week. Um, Dan is not talking about specifically what he found until he reveals it himself on August 6th at the Black Hat Conference in Las Vegas. So um, I've shot a note off to Dan to see if he's interested in joining us in our recording the week after that, where he'll be able to we could get it from, you know, if he's available, if his schedule permits. I mean, you can imagine he's way busy right now, but it'd be fun to hear from him directly what it is he found. But two weeks before that, which is to say next week, we're going to talk about something we have never covered. We've never talked about DNS spoofing, and that will lay all the foundation for what Dan has found, because the topic of DNS spoofing is well understood and well known. There are there are things you can do to harden your DNS servers. It, what's going on is that many of them didn't implement some simple to do things. And it sounds to me from reading between the lines as though Dan discovered that the things they were doing to thwart spoofing ended up not being good enough. And I think that's what he'll probably tell us. So uh, I just wanted to let all of our listeners know that that we absolutely know about this big DNS news, and we're going to give it probably two co- episodes and complete coverage because this is really interesting from from a theoretical standpoint. I know that our listeners that have enjoyed our more propellerhead podcasts are going to get a kick out of this because um, I'm going to explain in detail how the DNS protocol works between DNS servers and What's how spoofing works in general, and then uh, two weeks later, after Dan has been able to go public with the details, either he or I will explain what it was specifically that that he found. Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting story. What's really sad is that the patch all the patch went out on Patch Tuesday, went out to uh, Cisco and and Microsoft and uh, many Linux. Uh, you know, bind, which is the commonly used in Linux. However, many internet service providers didn't apply it. So uh, Dan made a great site, Doxpara, D-O-X-P-A-R-A.com, that you could test your internet service provider's DNS. And I was shocked to learn, you know, I have three different internet service providers here. DSL Extreme had done it. OpenDNS did it. But my local Comcast hadn't done it yet. Uh, 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 I was surprised. uh, Yeah, actually, um, OpenDNS uh, has always been running 
uh, strong DNS servers, which were doing something called uh, UDP port randomization. Oh, so they were doing it from day one. That's they great. were always, yeah, or, 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 or query port randomization, depending right. upon who you talk to. The idea being that, that some servers always issue their queries from, from the same port, from, from a fixed port. Or, or sequential some, ports or ports, guessable ports. Exactly. Yeah. And so, so the more random that is, that's one of the things servers can do to thwart this. Anyway, the takeaway, if anyone is concerned about this right now, uh, and we've talked about open DNS before, yep. uh, anyone could switch their DNS over to open DNS in order to, to, um, to sidestep the possibility that their ISPs their own ISP's DNS servers might be spoofed. Now, I mean, again, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves. We're going to completely cover this next week. My sense is it's a really good thing that this is being fixed. Uh, DNS has been known to be vulnerable for a long time. This is forcing, for example, Yahoo to give up bind version 8, which everyone has been saying they ought to get rid of for a long time. They're finally going to switch to 9, which is just stronger and better. Um, so, so it's, this is going to end up being a good thing. Um, and we'll talk about in detail, the nature of the kind of problem that this represents. It's not, it's not like end of the world, but it's really good that this is being fixed because there's no doubt the bad guys would have had a lot of fun, um, spoofing DNS servers wherever they chose to. Right. The other news, the other news in security world is there are Two new zero-day exploits. Um, not, they just came out after Patch Tuesday. After these are Windows exploits, so uh, they and of course they were timed typically to come out, you know, like on Patch Tuesday, so Microsoft doesn't have time to respond. Um, one of them only affects users of Word 2002 Service Pack 3. So it's it's a bad problem because the idea would be if something was if someone sent you a document that was that was maliciously designed, which you opened in Word 2002 Service Pack 3, it can perform a remote code execution exploit on your machine. Um, Microsoft offers no workaround for this except says uh, maybe upgrade to Word 2003 or XP or something else. Don't use Word 2002. It's vulnerable. I'm sure by next patch Tuesday in August that, that you know this will be one of their fixes um, that they'll be offering. Okay, the second one, the second zero-day exploit, and by, by the way, just to remind people, zero-day means that it was found in the wild. That is, exploits of unknown vulnerabilities were found in the wild. And the uh, oh, I, I ought to mention, however, that virus updates, virus um, signature updates have been updated and are being updated by the various virus scanning companies to detect these this particular type of maliciously formed document. So even if you had Word t- 2002 Service Pack 3 and you were a person who likes to open documents that you receive in spam or unsolicited, uh, you know. What kind of person is that? <laughs> good, good luck to you. But it does mean that if you've got a good antiviral scanner that has been updated, it'll probably stop you from hurting yes. yourself by doing that in any event. Okay, so the second zero-day exploit is once again an an active X control which Internet Explorer can invoke if you visit a malicious website. You know we've talked often and and repeatedly, unfortunately, about Active X and the problem it represents because these are essentially DLLs which are which normally exist on your system and which because Internet Explorer is all powerful, you're able to visit a site which runs a script that invokes an ActiveX control that was really never intended to be used by Internet Explorer. You probably don't want to ever use it with Internet Explorer, but the site found that there was a mistake in some sort of the parsing of data in that control, which it's able then to leverage to execute code on your machine. Well, this is an access, uh, the access snapshot viewer which affects access 2000 2002 2003 and the standalone viewer it does not affect 
the access that ships with Office 2007 because it doesn't include an ActiveX control for that. Um, on our notes page, on the show notes for this episode, 153, I've got two links. I've got a link to Microsoft Security Advisory about this because there is a workaround. Um, we've talked before about the so-called kill bits. Kill bits is a, is a bit you can set in an ActiveX controls registry entry that prohibits it from being instantiated, as is the, the jargon in object-oriented land, that prohibits it from being instantiated into Internet Explorer. So the second link on the, our show notes page is a reg file, which you anyone who wants to can just click on it, and they can either save it or they can just run it, um, and that will set the three kill bits for the three different variations of this control. If they, if you then shut down and restart Internet Explorer, what's happened is, even if you've got Access 2002, or I'm sorry, Access 2000, 2002, or 2003, or even the standalone Access Viewer, IE won't be able to load it, and you'll be safe. And again, I'm virtually certain that by next patch Tuesday in August, this will be one of the things that Microsoft is fixing. But in the meantime, th both of these things, th this Word document exploit and this ActiveX exploit, are in the wild, and they appeared before anyone knew that there was a problem. So thus, those are zero-day exploits. Very interesting. I have a story for you. I don't know if you saw it in the San Francisco Chronicle. It just broke today. A disgruntled computer engineer in the city has commandeered San Francisco's multi-million dollar computer network and, and pre prevented access to anybody. He's a computer administrator, and he has changed the, um, the passwords at this new Fiber WAN network. It's their wide area network over fiber. Uh, it's a $5 million uh, or a multi-million dollar system. I think they spent hundreds of millions of dollars on it. And nobody can get in. They threw him in jail on Sunday, and he won't tell anybody the password. <laughs> oh, goodness. So the whole thing is down. Apparently, he's been having trouble, uh, and they've been trying to fire him. And so he did this, started this on June 20th. He, he you know, put basically uh, modified the system so that only he would have, you know, he could pull a, pull a cord, and, and, and uh, only he would have access to this system. Uh, he, he did, and now so they're stuck. So he built some sort of like a, a trap door exactly. that, that would that would allow him to get in and change the the master password in a way that nobody else could deal with. Wow! And they're they're saying right now that undoing this denial of access could cost them millions of dollars. Uh, they're also worried that he may have told somebody, a third party, how to set off a bomb in the system. You know, a a logic bomb in the system that would destroy data. And they they're trying to find that quickly. He's, he has no access to the outside world. He's in jail, but it's a little scary if you think about it. Wow. Yeah, that's just, crazy. Just shows you that uh, <laughs> the guy who knows how to run the computers wields a lot of power. Yes, more so every day. Yes, very yeah. interesting. That's the, uh, the, the, the jocks in high school are, are no longer laughing at us, Leo. <laughs> no more wedgies, huh? No more <laughs> superatomic wedgies for us. <laughs> okay, so my really fun uh, Spinrite story for the week uh, was uh, came to me with a subject line, Spinrite got me a TC-1100 tablet PC. Oh, I like that. Well, actually, you like the tablet PC or you like the uh, subject line? I like the subject line. I like the fact that it got him one. Yeah. He says, Steve, my wife's, my wife, my wife's, my wife's laptop was in the trash for three days after dying a slow and relatively painless death. Now, Keith, he calls this painless. I would call this painful. But he says, it had been having problems for a while now, and so I was only using it as a TV display in my office. One day, it finally died completely, and without hesitation, I tossed it in the trash. I normally hate parting with legacy technology, as my wife can attest, but I resisted retaining it on this occasion. So there it sat for three days in our trash can, collecting coffee grounds, mayonnaise, leaking ketchup, and all manner of other exotic sauces. On the third day, <laughs> <laughs> poor laptop, oh, on, the on the third day, it dawned on me to give Spinrite a whirl. So I pulled the laptop, docking station, and cables out of the trash, 
cleaned it up uh, and placed the Spinrite CD into its half-broken CD drive. Sure enough, Spinrite booted, worked its magic, and completely recovered the drive. Spinrite brought my computer back from the grave, only this time with a for sale sign attached. I sold that laptop to a friend and used the money to purchase an HP TC1100 tablet PC on eBay. It still runs great for my friend, and I was able to purchase a legendary TC1100 on eBay with the proceeds from the sale. Thank you, Steve, and thank you, Spinrite. Wow, that's a great story. I love it. And by, and by the way, I mentioned before we were recording that I have two of the HP TC1100. Yes. Why is I, that? <laughs> well, well, now, do you remember the gal who used to come on the show when we were recording um, Call for Help in Toronto? She had she had one. Oh, uh, Jen. And, yeah, Jen Cutter. Jen, you, yes. you fell in love with it. That's right. I, I did. Every time <laughs> I saw that wacky thing, I thought, oh, I was lusting after it. It's like, okay, I don't have one of these. Yeah. yeah. So I have to she fix loved that problem. It. Yeah. Oh, and, and I got to say, I mean, for like, I, I used to be when I was involved in my homeowners association, I would be jotting notes in, in the meetings. Yeah. It's yeah. perfect for jotting notes. And my and Microsoft has that very cool application, um, that organizer I can't remember one the name note. of it. I love OneNote. OneNote, one yeah. yes, which works perfectly with the tablet PC. Anyway, it's 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 interesting to me that tablet PCs never really caught on. But I have to say, anytime I want to like really use a laptop, it's just easier to use it with a traditional pointing device and a keyboard, especially when you really want to put text in. But the handwriting recognition is very good. I installed Vista on one of them, and I've got XP on the other, and they're just you know kind of funky machines. But I do like them. Love it too. There you go. End of commercial. <laughs> Let's uh, no. It's just the beginning. Because <laughs> I'm going to start talking about Astaro right now. Astaro, and then we're going to get to our guest uh, Alexander Hanfman. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, form. This just appalling technology uh, that uh, that is uh, fortunately looks like uh, thanks to the attention we and others have given it, it might be stymied. We'll hope anyway. Uh, and thanks to people like Alexander. But first, I want to tell you about Astaro, our great sponsors. Astaro has been sponsoring this show since practically the very first day, and we uh, we just love them. They are they make uh, a unified threat management systems. They have the Astaro Security Gateway, and now they have a Astaro Web Gateway. But let me tell you about the Security Gateway. I think for most of you, that's what you're going to want to use. It is an all-in-one unit, about the size of a router, that gives you the best of breed in open source and commercial security software. Of course, you get a firewall and intrusion detection. But you get a whole lot more. I mean, it's really kind of amazing. I, I I can do this. I can do a long commercial on this stuff because there's so much going on here. Three different kinds of antivirus, two for email, one for the web. You get anti-spam, anti-phishing. Your users are totally protected. But not only that, transparent uh, uh, encryption via OpenPGP or SMIME, uh, encryption and decryption. So, you, you know, you can really tighten down security on your email as well. Anti-spyware, uh, instant messenger, peer-to-peer control, content filtering. For, and for a limited time, if you're a Cisco PIX user, you know they're phasing out the PIX. It's end of life. Uh, you trade in a Cisco PIX appliance, you're going to get a 20% discount on a brand new Astaro security gateway. Astaro, you got to try it. In fact, you could try it free in your business right now for a free evaluation unit. Visit AST. ARO.com. You can also get free downloads of the Astaro software there. They want everybody to try it. Or call the number 877, the number 4 ASTARO. It's 1 427 8276. Nice guys making really great stuff. Great security hardware. Astaro. ASTARO.com. We thank them so much for their support of security now. Shall I get Alexander on the line? Let's get our guest yep. on, Alexander Hanfen. He's calling from England, am I correct? Is that right? I'm from England. Ah, wonderful. Well, it's nice to have you. Thank you for joining us. You're a bit so, quiet so, then. You could turn your, yours up a little bit. I'll just talk louder. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so Alexander, tell us, uh, like, tell us the story from, from the beginning. Like, what happened with Form? How did it come to people's attention? How did you get involved? And what's going on? Uh, well, on February 14th earlier this year, Form um, gave out a press release stating that it signed deals with Carphone Warehouse through their Talk Talk um, company, BT and Virgin Media, regarding this deep packet inspection technology for the purpose of behavioral advertising. 
obviously that made the news fairly quickly on a, a technology news site called The Register, um, who've been they've covered this issue extensively from the beginning. Um, and the outrage started there. I read about it first on The Register. Being somebody who's A, from a technology background for 17 years and, and B, a sociologist, um, a lot of my work during my studies over the past few years have been based on on privacy issues and, and issues surrounding technology. So it was something that I was interested in both from an academic standpoint and from a professional standpoint of having worked in, in the technology field for such a long time. Sorry? Okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, keep, uh, go ahead. Okay, yeah. Um, so I got involved in looking at some of the different laws which I felt may have been violated by, by this technology. Uh, the, the news continued to, to flow on the register with a, a whole bunch of articles over the period of about six weeks. Um, and more and more information came through about what was happening, um, the, how the technology worked, and so on and so forth. Um, and then we found out about the covert trials in 2006 and 2007. Um, and at the time, I was working on my dissertation, which at that point was uh, a dissertation on, on the validity of Microsoft within the public sector. So uh, the effect that has on the economy, et cetera, as opposed to using open source solutions. Um, however, I started to write a paper on form purely out of my own interest. Uh, and that ended up taking on the role of, of my dissertation with six weeks to go before the deadline, completely changed my, my topic and, and ended, up, ended up writing this legal analysis of the, the covert trials in 2006 and 2007. Um, then in April, I was invited by Simon Davies, who's on the uh, the CEO of 8020 Thinking, who were doing the privacy impact assessment for the form system, um, to appear as a guest speaker at, a, at a, what, what they call a town hall meeting or a public meeting, um, where form and their executives address the press and, and the general public um, to discuss the technology and discuss their concerns. There was me there. There was Dr. Richard Clayton from Cambridge University. Uh, there was Form CEO Kent and Form's technical director, I believe, was there. Um, so we all did our, our own little speeches. I was asked to give a, a speech based on the perspective from the general public. Um, so I gave a speech about the, the privacy concerns, um, the issues under the Human Rights Act mm -hmm. that this causes, and uh, the fact that people just find the entire system offensive, that it's it's an anathema to society to be profiled in this way. Um, so that's where it all started. And then a week later, I was called in to do an interview on a BBC news show called Click, which is a technology news show, where I had a head-to-head -head debate with the CEO of Form for that show. Uh, then I published my dissertation shortly after that, which has now been downloaded over 70,000 times since May the 1st. So that's been particularly successful. And I continued my interest from there. Um, as a result of the attention I was getting, obviously, I kind of became a natural leader for the campaign. Um, then we announced the protest event, which takes place tomorrow. Uh, and, and everything's stemmed from that point. So that's where my involvement came from and how I'm moving forward with the with the campaign at the moment. Well, so I, I would imagine with the, the confrontation that you've had with the CEO of Form, I mean, wh where you guys have literally been head to head on this, you know, he's he's justifying or defending what they're doing on the grounds that it's anonymous and no, I mean, and they've like gone to great measures to, to anonymize. They don't know anyone's identity. They assign, you know, random 256 bit tokens to people. Um, given that, um, and I don't mean to play devil's advocate because obviously I'm way in your court on this, but I want to sort of expand the, our understanding, um, given that, um, from your perspective, how is that not a useful counter-argument? Uh, well, basically, in the UK and Europe as a, as a wider area, we have a number of laws which protect us from this type of interception. And purely the act of processing data in the first place is covered by these data protection laws. Um, so in order to anonymize this, this data that they're claiming that, that they're doing so effectively, obviously they need to process that data. Uh, so there was an issue there. There was an issue with regards to the interception of communications under a piece of legislation we have in the UK called Regulation of Investigatory Powers Act, um, which is basically entrenching 
certain aspects of the European Convention of Human Rights into British statute and makes it a criminal offence for any party to intercept the communications of another without the consent of that person. Or in the cases of national security uh, and the prevention of a crime, the police can obtain a warrant to intercept those communications. Um, then there's other situations with regards to secret trials, such as the Computer Misuse Act, based on the fact that they were, in, certainly in the covert trials, they were altering the content of the data stream or the click stream, as people like to call it now, um, to insert their JavaScript. So that's forcing the CPU of the computer to, to, to run extra cycles, to use resources within that computer without the consent of, of the person who's, who owns the machine. So the, the Computer Misuse Act came into play there. Um, the Privacy and Electronic Communications Regulations here in the UK, which is a European directive, also prevents intercepting and dealing with communication data without consent of, of the people who are engaged in, in that particular communication. So we have a whole host of laws here in the UK, and certainly that's not all of them. That's just a, a short summary of some of them, which protect us from this type of behavior. Um, and when you have laws in place, it's pretty difficult to offer a counter-argument to say, well, it's illegal, but we're anonymizing it. So if you <laughs> yeah, get my point. Yeah, I mean, that makes absolute sense. So it must be that the ISPs just sort of ignored the fact that you that, that anyone could argue persuasively that that what they were allowing a, a third party to do in return for monetary gain was a violation of a, a bunch of laws. Yeah, I mean, of course, the ISPs involved are claiming that they've had legal advice and they're perfectly happy with the legal situation they believe it's legal uh, but a number of technical experts a number of legal experts peers in the house of lords people at the european commission mps in our own um in our own government all believe that this technology is currently and certainly was during the covert trials illegal without the informed and it has to be the the expressed informed con consent of the individuals involved. So it's, it isn't a case of they can bury the terms in some um, end-user license agreement or terms of terms and conditions. These must be explicit informed consent because it's dealing with communications and issues around privacy. So, so for example, you know, as as you, you know, I know that you've listened to the last couple of podcasts where we've been talking about this, and and Leo and I have both been saying that you know, if this were an opt-in system, where where which would be easy for the ISP to do, where you know, when the system is being deployed, somebody tries to to go to any random website, the the ISP intercepts their page request and says, well, you know, hold on a second, we want to just talk to you for a second. We want to get your permission to do the following. If it were opt-in in that fashion, then they would have a position to argue, wait a minute, you know, it it is something that that people are doing only through informed consent. And of course, they know that a huge percentage of people would say, uh, no, thank you. I don't want to be watched while I'm surfing the internet by my own ISP or my own ISP's agents. Exactly. And that's the point. Certainly, if it was an opt-in situation, I would have fewer arguments. There would still be issues regarding the consent of content providers, people who are providing these web pages, which are being basically stolen for the purpose of commercial gain. They're being copied, which is certainly infringes on copyright um, so whereas I may not be the biggest fan of modern copyright, certainly in this situation, it could turn around and bite them. Um, but yes, if it was, if it was opt-in, then there would be far fewer arguments against the technology. So when you say that they're, they're stealing the web pages, you mean that it, it, it's the, the keyword searching algorithm, which is parsing all the pages that are being retrieved by the user in order to categorize their interests and build a profile of them. Yeah, I mean, essentially, they do a little more than that. They actually take a copy of the page and process it offline so it doesn't interfere with the routing um, hardware that they have in there. Obviously, they need to keep as, mu as much resource available for routing all these people through this Layer 7 technology, this DPI kit, as we've come to know it. Um, so in order to lower the overhead on that piece of equipment, the, the page is actually copied to another piece of equipment, which does the analysis offline. 
I see. So, so unlike their earlier work where they were inserting JavaScript, which, as I understand, Nebuad is, is still doing in their current technology, but Form no longer is. Instead, they're doing, as we've talked about two weeks ago, the, the detailed technology, you know, this redirection dance in order to, in order to um, push their cookies out in a first-party um, context across all the domains that anyone visits. Um, and um, uh, using that to track people. Yes, certainly. This whole 307 cookie dance, as you put it last week, which I found quite amusing, uh, is is a big issue and infringes on a piece of legislation we have here called the Fraud Act, uh, basically by their equipment claiming to be a third party when they really aren't is, yep. is an issue of fraud, especially in a commercial transaction between an end user and a website. Say, for example, they were purchasing some goods on Amazon, for example. Uh, that's really interesting. So, so the user puts the URN, URL in for a domain they've never visited before um, while form has been in place. Thus, they don't already have a form cookie. The, the form system sees that and, and fraudulently intercepts their clear and explicit request to be connected to whatever website they were trying to get to and pretends to be them redirecting their browser instead over to forms domain. Exactly, yes. I mean, it's not new technology. It's basically um, a, a cache, a proxy cache um, in, in, respect of the way that, in, the, in respect of the way that it works. Um, so it's not new technology, and this sort of technology has been used with positive results in the past for the purpose of, of network um, alleviating network resources and, and, and overheads. But certainly for the purpose of advertising, it, it puts it in a much more sinister light. Right. So what's been traditionally done is, for example, and I and we talked about this recently, in fact, on Security Now, an ISP's caching proxy where the their customers are are their 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 the ISP's customers query goes to the proxy server. It reissues the query for the web page, which it caches based on the caching rules, which are provided on the page. And then the the customer receives that copy, the benefit being that another customer, another IS, uh, of the ISP's customers might request a, that page or, you know, components of the page, um, Im- I- images and so forth, which could then be served by the caching proxy and minimize the ISP's bandwidth out onto the Internet and give the ISP's customers faster response time, potentially. Yes, exactly. So it has had very positive uses in the past. But this is the first time, or maybe, perhaps not with Form, Nebuad have been doing this for some time now in the U.S., but certainly this type of um, application of this technology for behavioral profiling is, is, is new and is very sinister and something that we find very offensive. So where does this go from here? What do you think happens? Do you have like a sense for the, 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 the strength of both sides of the argument and, and how it's going to evolve? Well, I am traditionally a technologist, so I am in some respects in a unique position to be able to see this from from both a technical understanding and also from from many other viewpoints, such as being a father, such as being a social scientist, such as being somebody with, I like to think, reasonably high quality morals and ethics. Um, I'm not anti-advertising per se. There's, There's Obviously, we use advertising every day in our lives, but there's ways of doing it which are acceptable and don't intrude on people's rights and don't infringe on their privacy in the way that this technology is going to do. And obviously we have, we have issues with mission creep or function creep as well. Certainly um, as a technologist, you'll be aware that DPI technology has the ability to do pretty much anything it wants to do to that network stream. And in that situation, we've only got the word of an anti, you know, an ex spyware company that they're not going to, add new functionality to this technology, which for an experienced admin wouldn't even take a great deal of time because we're basically, we're just looking at regular expressions or passing text. So whereas it's complex for a non-technical person to, to understand, certainly for an experienced um, technician, making changes to the system to, to change the way that it that it's looking at these pages or this this data can be done very quickly and, and almost um, be completely undetectable. Because there's no oversight 
of these systems. There's no way that um, they're not using open source. Everything's proprietary. Uh, certainly in the in the previous trials, they use Squid, but they were running other technology on top of that. So if there's no oversight and there's no measures in place to to monitor what they're doing and keep an eye on any updates they make or any in, um, access they have to the systems, then how can we trust a company that were responsible for what was pretty much regarded as the worst rootkit ever to be deployed on the internet um, with all our communication data? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I, I, you know, one of the concerns that we've talked about while we've been discussing form is in, in, in the past couple of weeks is this idea that, that, you know, this is already makes people feel uncomfortable and really upsets users who who discover or learn that this may be going on. But, and and that's only this much of it. But you can imagine that that if these kinds of companies, these third parties, get a foothold in ISPs with the technology, that just, as, as you said, it, it's not a huge stretch to imagine them saying, oh, well, you know, look at how much better job of profiling we'll be able to do if we also parse people's email. Because email yeah. between, you know, b- b- between the user's client and the ISP's SMTP server is typically not encrypted in any fashion. It's like, well, yeah, we could do, you know, a better job, do, you know, make a better set of decisions about who this person is and, and what sort of information they're interested in. The, the other thing that I find really interesting is that there's even been a question, I mean, raised about how effective this profiling would be i mean even if it weren't weren't being done the way it was you know the the question is is it hasn't even been shown in any in, in anything i've been able to find or read that you get a demonstrably better result after doing all this well certainly we haven't been able to find any information that suggests you can um nebuad are pretty much claiming that they're still in trials and they're not going to be willing to, to disclose that information to the public. Form haven't done so either. So, no, I mean, there's, there's no evidence. It's an untested system in reality, um, and it's entering into an incredibly competitive marketplace. Well, um, so, so tomorrow there's a big demonstration. Yeah, we've got the protest in London outside BT's AGM tomorrow. And so that'll be just the idea being to raise a, a additional awareness and 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 get it you know like like bring it to a head with BT where they 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 have to saying okay um, we're going to move forward with this or we're going to abandon it. Certainly yes, and one of the other functions of the protest will be to deliver a case file to to the police um, with a complaint regarding the covert trials in two thousand six and two thousand seven. Mm-hmm. Um, with the intent that they're going to investigate that and hopefully lead on to a prosecution. So um, you do have attorneys then involved over on the anti-form side of this? Sorry? So so you do have legal counsel involved on, on the anti-form side, and there's, so there, there's some, some legal pushback, not just outrage um, among users. Oh, there have been some some very influential um, legal experts who have been involved on our side of the debate, yes. Um, Nicholas Bohm, who's general counsel for Foundation of Information Policy Research here, which is a UK um, government think tank on technology issues. Uh, He's a retired solicitor. He also is quite heavily involved in Cambridge University technology law as a a guest lecturer there. Um, And certainly he's made comments as regards to his position within FIPA, Foundation for Information Policy Research, that this technology is illegal. And and his legal analysis was pretty much paralleled my own, actually. So that was a, a very positive thing. Um, do you know anything about or have you looked at where we are in the United States in terms of these the, the, the laws and and issues and interception of our traffic relative to the let the um, legal framework that you've got in the UK? Well certainly recently I wrote a paper on the, the sunset articles within the, the Patriot Act. Um, that was which was an academic paper and as part of that I touched on um, information regarding uh, personal data in the US. Now, as far as I understand it, in the U.S., the Fourth Amendment, which is what would normally cover privacy issues, 
doesn't afford any rights to the individual who volunteers their information to a third party. Excuse me a second. Um, So obviously there's an issue there that there isn't sufficient protection within your constitution. um, And the Patriot Act, again, Hmm. takes that even further. So with regards to, to strong legislation, you're actually in a worse position than we are in the UK. That said, however, you've had a lot more success with your politicians there in Congress than we have here in the UK. I think under the Cable Act, your your congressmen have, have stated that the, the Nebuad technology would fall foul of the law. Now, obviously, the Cable Act is an act, of, uh, an act of legislation, so it is important. But it's not really one of the bigger pieces of legislation you hear talked about in the US. So it's interesting to see that a, that a single section of, of a relatively unknown piece of legislation in the US can stop Nebuad and front, po- front Porch dead in their tracks mm. as regards to, to Congress, um, whereas over here we have multiple pieces of legislation, I think seven or eight different pieces of legislation, which this technology falls under, and we haven't been able to get a positive response from our own government. So whereas you may not be as protected, it's unusual for us to see a country that is normally seen as, as being less secure with regards to privacy than than the UK, Um, certainly receiving much stronger support from your government than we are here. And that's a great thing to see, obviously. Well, and it may also be aided by the fact that thanks to the Patriot Act and what this country has been going through for the last um, seven years, uh, ever, ever since the events of September 11th, that there's there's an awareness and a and a concern about the issue of privacy. So we just may be more primed and ready for, you know, a, addressing these things. I had a meeting with the Earl of North Esk here in the UK. He's a he's um a peer in the House of Lords, which is one of our houses of parliament, and he's been covering the form issue from a for an official perspective in uh, in his his position um and he he believes he actually lives in the u.s for half of the year and he believes that your congress are actually much more knowledgeable about technology issues than than our politicians are here in the uk maybe there's younger blood in your political system or maybe simply because of the massive tech industry that's there it's something that's unavoidable but certainly his belief is there's a there's a huge lack of knowledge of these issues um, and a huge lack of understanding of these issues within the British government. So that's funny. We've been saying that about Amer- the American government for some time, but I, I guess it could be worse. Certainly, in this case, yes. But, uh, think of anything else that that. No, I'm just uh, Alexander. I'm just really glad that uh, uh, you've brought such this to light, and that others are fighting so hard. I think, in a way, uh, by leading the way on this, you've kind of protected us here in the states against it. I mean, you've raised awareness to the degree that uh, by the time it came to our shores, uh, there were people prepared and ready to fight it. So thank you. Well, we owe you some some gratitude as well, because obviously the storm that's raised in the US form are very much interested in, in expanding their markets into the US. And certainly this was one of the arguments they were using to try and attract investors over the past right. couple of months. Right. Now, with companies like Nebuad and Front Porch effectively being frozen out of the market by Congress, this obviously affects forms um, financial interests. And as a result, we've seen a, a, a stunning fall in their share price over the past five months. And that's been it's partly been down to the action that's been going on in the US. Well, great. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it, Alexander. I know it's late there and uh, we're glad you could speak to us. Thank you very much for having me on, and thanks for the other two shows you've done on this and the, and the continued coverage. I look forward to listening to the rest of the show. Thank you, Alexander. Take care. Thanks, Alexander. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. I'm sure we will do. Uh, you, you're planning, I'm sure, doing more about this uh, in, in time. Well, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I'm, we've got a, a, a communications link established with Alexander. Um, he and I have been exchanging email. He's been participating over in the news groups uh, at GRC. Oh, great. So, so I'm sure he'll, he'll be able to keep us appraised of what's going on, and I will let our listeners know as things develop. I can tell you one thing that's going on. The fine folks at audible.com are recording more books all the time. Yes, <laughs> it's time to take a break and Visit with uh, our great sponsor, audible.com. They are the creators of uh, audio books. Now, I know, Steve, you, you like your books served electronically. Don't let me forget to tell you about dropping my Kindle. Oh, no. 
but but go ahead. Oh, <laughs> first. no. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, let me tell you about, uh, you know, I recommended a book, and and I want to say that I, uh, that, uh, I recommended that Dan Brown book based on uh, a listener who said, oh, you know, you, people will really like this. I hadn't read this. I, and uh, a number of people said, it wasn't the greatest book. So I apologize if if you didn't like uh, if you didn't like the uh, Dan Brown book if you got it but hey there are fifty thousand titles and that's the beauty of Audible.com it's something for everyone and it doesn't have to be to everyone's taste there's always something else you can listen to on Audible.com I'm 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 going to tell you what I haven't listened to yet but about to it's the Black Hole War my battle to make the world safe for quantum mechanics it's a uh, it's a uh, Leonard Susskind who is a, uh, a, a brilliant physicist, and it is uh, the attempt to, um, well, let me put it, let me read what it says. What happens when something is sucked into a black hole? Does it disappear? Three decades ago, a young physicist named Stephen Hawking claimed it did, and in doing so, put everything at risk that we know about the fundamental laws of the universe. Leonard Susskind and Ger- Gerald T. Hooft uh, recognized the threat and responded with a counterattack that changed the course of physics. Now, I know you love science, Steve. I love science. And I love nothing better than reading about black holes, uh, cosmology, physics. But what more could be better? Well, an actual, you know, practical war between two of the greatest physicists of our time uh, debating what uh, what the facts of uh, life are, the deepest mysteries of modern physics. This is my kind of book. I've got it on my list, and I'm going to be. That's my next book, and I'm so excited. I can't wait to listen to it. That's the kind of thing you know. We spend. I just uh, I I just quoted a study from the University of Texas. They said something like 535 hours on average a year in the car commuting. Think if you read or listened to audible books during that time, all of the amazing knowledge that you would acquire. I'd, I I don't listen to music much anymore in my car. I'm listening to audible books and I invite you to do the same. You can still listen to music, but audible books are a great break from the songs. Audiblepodcast.com security slash security. Now sign up today at audiblepodcast.com slash security. Now, and you can get a free uh, book to try out. See if you like it. No obligation if you don't, but I think you will. Uh, and we thank them so much for their support. My recommendation this week, the black hole war, my battle to make the world safe for quantum mechanics. Just love the idea. Uh, Steve Gibson, what happened to your Kindle, my friend? What happened? Uh, well, okay. The good This has a happy ending, and I'm very impressed with Amazon. Um, I, was, I was sitting in a restaurant on like a bench seat. So only, only like two feet off the ground. I had my legs crossed, and the Kindle was in my lap. Um, and I was, you know, eating or drinking some wine or something, and it it slipped out from between my legs. Oh, now, no. I knew it was slipping, and the car the floor was carpeted, and it was two feet. And I figured, eh, eh big deal. Let it you know? go. And actually, about a week before, it had done the same thing, exact same position, same bench. I have my, you know, the table that I like in, in my one of my favorite restaurants, and so it's like, ah. Eh, you know, so it drops two feet to carpet, right? No problem. Except this second time, I pick it up, and the screen image is severely Uh-oh. damaged. Um, the the like the upper quarter inch across the entire top of the screen, and about an inch over from the left, vertically streaking down was just dead. Sort of like, you know, like dead scan lines. Yeah. But I mean, it's so it like I was like, ooh, ow, no. And I, you know, so figuring that it was sort of like the the high density edge connector that a, that a screen like that would use. I sort of squeezed on the top of it. And sure enough, it like changed the nature of the outage on the screen, but didn't improve it really. It just sort of modified it so i knew i was like in the right area so i'm thinking oh my you know now what so okay no kindle is more than a year old because they've only started they were only selling them since last november when you and i both got got ours and um so i went online looked around in the online groups and saw 
that several people had had very good experiences when they'd like done something bad to theirs or the Kindle had died or something, you know, as is going to happen with any consumer product when you're pumping out as many as Amazon is. So I contacted Amazon about a week ago. Um, uh, I don't know if it's email. I think I phoned them. Oh, yeah, I found a phone number in the online forums. I phoned them, talked to an Amazon person. He said, oh, yeah, no problem. We'll send you a replacement. Wow. And you have a month to send back your other one. And and uh, I'm going to send you email with a link to a, a UPS prepaid return deal. So I printed that out. That's amazing, Steve. I, I am very, very impressed. In two days, I had a brand new Kindle. Wow. And, and the I went account to, was transferred over? Yep. Wow. Yep. I was able to move the content over. And uh, I boxed up the old one and sent it back. And I mean, and I have to say, Leo, speaking of the Kindle, just as that was happening, I was noticing that the battery was already beginning to show some fatigue. That is, it was normally I could on a full charge. I only turn the, 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 the cell radio on for like briefly at 5 a.m. when I'm at Starbucks in the morning to update my, you know, Wall Street Journal and Slate and, 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 and periodicals, then I turn it off. So it's barely on. And normally I could go for several weeks before I would even notice that the battery gauge came even the first increment down below full. But here now, what, uh, eight months old, it was clearly not lasting as long. Interesting. Of course, you're using now, it very heavily. I am using it every day, um, although a lithium-ion battery should have about two years of, of useful life. They actually do get old, even if you don't use them at all. There's like sort of a freshness factor to them. The good news, of course, is unlike some consumer products <clears throat> made by that company whose name starts with A. Um, <laughs> you could change the battery. In fact, yes. you know, it's funny. When I ordered my Kindle, I ordered a second battery. They're cheap. Yes, they are inexpensive, and so I know that a year from now, when my assuming that this is this is the same, that my replacement Kindle's battery begins doing the same, I'll just get a second battery, and you know, and I, be back. I, I to have my second battery, but I I haven't ever uh, used it. I got it because I thought, oh, maybe I'll bring it with me in case I you know, go on a longer trip and I can't charge it up when like when I was going to Egypt. But I never needed to use it at all. No, I mean, so. the Kindle's battery life is spectacularly yeah, yeah. long. It so. goes a long time. Anyway, my, so my story of dropping my Kindle had a happy ending, and I'm very, very impressed with Amazon's customer service. And, you know, I thought, I mean, literally, I, I'm bound to this thing. So I thought yeah. maybe they would make me send it back, and I would be without oh. it without it for a month or right. something. I was considering buying a second one just so that I could have my own overlap. And then I thought, well, what am I going to do with, you know, a redundant, a re yeah, right, exactly. So right. they just they solved the problem in a in a very satisfying way. That's that's truly uh, impressive customer service. I have to say, credit to uh, Amazon for that. Uh, yeah, it may cost them a little bit in the long run, but uh, in the short run, but in the long run, boy, what what great word of mouth you get when you start doing stuff like that. Yep. I mean, because they, I mean, to be honest, you broke it. I did. They didn't have to fix I, it. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't their fault. It was yeah, my fault. Yeah, you know. I mean, yeah. even though I have to say, Leo. That should not have broken. It shouldn't it. break after a two-foot fall to carpet. It was a gentle fall, yeah. and so it was like, okay. Although, you know, up till that point, it had been absolutely perfect. So it's not like there was. I had any other complaint. Right. And I've got to say, I'm, I'm, I'm still of two minds about the page turn. It's annoying that it's so easy to do it by mistake, but it is so nice right. that it is so easy to do it when you want right. to. Yeah. Once you learn how to hold it, which is down on the keyboard, counterintuitive yep. though that may be. Yep. It's yep. not such a bad thing. I I read a, I do a lot of reading on the Kindle. Although, you know, between the audio books and now I'm reading uh, Neil Stevenson's book, and the only way I could read it was in paperback because it's a pre-release, and that's a thousand pages. That's kept me pretty busy. So I've actually been reading a paper book. <laughs> oh my god, they're heavy. <laughs> you got to hold what? them up. <laughs> What's paper? I don't know. This thing, I, it's not going to work. Actually, it's when like I mentioned that to Audible, they said, you know, we record these ahead of time, and they said we really ought to talk to the publishers about. The readers' copies offering because we know many reviewers like to use audiobooks. Maybe uh, doing audio versions of the for the reviewers, and actually, I think that's a great idea. I'll bet it helps. I, I bet it would help yeah. to get books reviewed. Yeah, I know. I yeah. listen. Yeah. <laughs> hey, thank you for covering uh, this. Uh, I think you've done the best job of anyone uh, covering 
uh, form and Nebuad and all of these uh, creepy little uh, uh, ISP things. We we do have a victory already under our belt because Time Warner decided not to use Nebuad. Yep. Um, I, I think I think that this is yep. so important to get the word out about this, and I think we might have stemmed the tide. And I think a, a lot of credit goes to you for that. Uh, this is something we had to nip in the bud. Yeah, no kidding. And uh, next week, I want to tell all of our listeners to wind up their propeller hats because <laughs> we got a terrific episode uh, planned on explaining exactly how DNS can be spoofed. The uh, what happens when you do that is you you stick the wrong IP address for a website into a DNS server such that anybody who then queries for the IP address of that site gets the wrong IP address and they are then directed to a potentially malicious server instead of the right one, even though everything looks just fine from their browser. Oof. So we'll talk about how that happens next week. Yeah, that's a creepy one. And I'm glad we're going to be talking about that. And that'll lay the foundation for our interview with Dan Kaminsky. We hope uh, after yep. Black Hat, once he's told the world, he'll come on and give us uh, some greater detail. Yep. Steve, always a pleasure. Make sure you go to GRC.com. That's where you'll find Steve's great spin right, the best disc repair utility and maintenance utility money can buy. You must have a must have if you've got hard drives. Also, you'll find his great free programs, including Shields Up to test your router uh, and a whole bunch of useful little tools like Wismo. It's and 16 kilobit versions of the show and transcripts for those who like to read along as they listen. It's all at GRC.com, the Gibson Research Corporation. And this week, I will remind our listeners that the show notes for this episode has the links for people who are concerned about the the ActiveX exploit of access oh, good. that allows them to easily set the kill bits for the three variations of that control in order to just shut that down until Microsoft patches it. Certainly, I'm I'm virtually certain they will by you know during next uh, Patch Tuesday, which will be the second Tuesday in August. Right. Thank you, Steve. We'll see you next week. Talk to you then, Leo. On Security Now. Bye-bye. Security Now.